News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And the mentality of people deeply involved in the sports world has really kind of been in the news these days. There's a bunch of different stories, whether it's hockey, football, you name it. But I think what it comes down to is the athlete persona, as it's called. This is not a new phenomenon either. The idea that athletes have a certain swagger or they need to emphasize their abilities. I mean, this goes all the way back to ancient Greece, actually. Dr. Peter J. Miller is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Classics at the University of Winnipeg and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have we always treated athletes kind of differently throughout history? Well, definitely when we look at, you know, the ancient Greeks and say the sports world from the 19th century onwards in Europe and the rest of the world, um, I think, yeah, I mean, athletes have always been thought of as a kind of different type. Uh, In ancient Greek playwright Euripides said there was a kind of race or type of athletes um, that you could kind of identify them on the street by how they looked, how they acted, what they ate. So I think, yeah, in in these two particular cultures, in a way, our own and the ancient Greeks, there's definitely a type of athlete that we, we treat differently. Okay, what type of athlete is that? Well, for the ancient Greeks, there's there's a lot of different attitudes about athletes. Um, sometimes some people think athletes are gluttonous, they eat too much. Maybe the phenomenon we know today is carbo-loading in antiquity or something like that. Um, so they're eating too much, they're really big on themselves, they're uh, interested in kind of propagating their fame and knowledge of their activities. And I think today, I'm not going to call athletes gluttonous, <laughs> but certainly we know athletes are interested in kind of bigging themselves up. And I think something like social media has brought this even more into the fore, right? Where we have athletes who connect directly with their fans and can explain their accomplishments. And um, and then there's also the bravado between athletes, right? Where athletes sort of have these rivalries that play out in public. I was thinking when you were saying that, Dr. Miller, about um, the actor, athlete, uh, former wrestling star, Dwayne Johnson. And he's yeah, always right. on social media talking about his cheat days, right? About Because he's so strict with what he eats. And then he has these cheat days, which are just over the top. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, The Rock is a great example, right? Of, uh, of someone who, uh, yeah, who transitioned from the entertainment and sports world into, uh, yeah, into entertainment world and has this yeah, larger-than-life persona. Um, yeah, I, I knew about his cheat days. I haven't, I haven't looked oh. at what they consist of. It's <laughs> really quite something. <laughs> it's really quite something. So let's talk about the swagger that kind of goes with this. So you talked about the eating part of it, but what about the idea that they ne- athletes throughout history have needed to let people know how good they are? Yeah, so, um, so I have to just put my daughter on a new show for her to watch while I'm talking. Um, no. so, oh, yeah, multitasking. Athletes, I'm so impressed. Multitasking, yes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so definitely um, in antiquity, athletes like those of today are interested in making sure that people know what they've done. Um, it's a bit harder for them in the ancient world because there's no internet, there's no social media, no radio, no television. And so they do things like hire uh, poets to write songs about them. They put inscriptions on statues in famous places like Olympia, where the Olympic Games take place. Um, So, yeah, they're interested in getting these messages out. And and I think today the same is true, especially of professional athletes who are, you know, getting uh, getting uh, advertising endorsements, uh, as I say, getting on social media or then transitioning from the world of, of sports to the world of entertainment or politics. So. Athletes definitely seem to be interested in getting people to know what they've done. And then some athletes interested in both antiquity and today and how they can leverage that to, you know, make a splash in other fields of society. Okay. And so that's always been the case? Well, I mean, I, I, I know about ancient Greece and, and today, and there's a, you know, there's a big gap in the sporting kind of history of sports and certainly the Middle Ages and medieval period, Renaissance in Europe. There's not as much organized sports, although certainly, you know, jousts with uh, elites and nobles, knights kind of are interested also in propagating this and using it for for political leverage. But definitely really far back in antiquity, even say, you know, 2,650 years ago, we hear about a guy named Chilon in Athens, who after he won an Olympic victory, tried to use it to establish himself as the sole ruler or tyrant of Athens. And these stories kind of just recur throughout classical antiquity. I don't think we have too many athletes who try and make themselves tyrants today. Uh, but we do have athletes who, of course, transition into politics. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, uh, former minister Ken Dryden, right, uh, liberal. So he, he, you know, used this kind of um, sporting fame, or at least leveraged that sporting fame, perhaps, to become a politician. I was thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger too. Yeah, yeah, even better example, right? More like The Rock too. 
Yeah, well, if he goes into politics, for sure. But, you know, there was somebody who definitely leveraged the fame of being athletic. And also that's kind of been his persona the whole time, hasn't it? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great example. And, and especially because Arnold's like large, he's larger than life, right? I mean, he, he, he was, he was Hercules. Yeah. At one point. Um, so yeah, that, that ability, to, especially with kind of, um, you know, what the ancient Greeks would call heavy athletes, who they call wrestlers and boxers. And for us, like bodybuilders and weightlifters who are kind of larger than life physically. Um, and, and then are able to then, you know, yeah, manipulate that larger than life physical body to become larger than life in, in her so, political and social presence. So in ancient Greece then as well, is that why there was this obsession with kind of not just setting the goal, but beating the record, setting a record and then beating that record? Yeah. So certainly the ancient Greeks are interested in winning above all, right? There's essentially no evidence, especially in the major competitions for second place, third place participation ribbons. Like this is nothing they would know about. It was kind of win or, or nothing. Um, so in order to make winning even better, uh, the way to do that is to set records. And so, yeah, we hear about athletes who say, well, it's not enough that I just won the Olympics. I need to have won it in a better way than anyone else has. Or I've won more Olympic competitions than anyone else. Or I won two on one day. Or I've won the best four competitions. So setting records is a way to make um, winning even better uh, in a society that's obsessed with winning. Okay. This makes so much sense. It sounds so similar to kind of the way we are today, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that... that there's one thing I was telling my students when I teach ancient sports that we live in a world that's so saturated with sports, obsessed with sports, and so do the ancient Greeks. But these are actually relatively unusual in global history. Um, and so for us, it's kind of makes the ancient Greeks seem very familiar. But in a sense, in the context of world history, we and the ancient Greeks with our obsession with sports are kind of strange uh, in the whole context of the world. So do you see that similarity in the modern day versus what you, know, you studied in ancient Greece? Yeah, I think so. I mean, athletes are interested in doing better and setting more records. Um, you know, I remember, you know, back in my day of listening, of being really interested in the Olympics, but that I remember the 200-meter sprinter Michael Johnson uh, had that famous 150-meter uh, sprint against Canadian Donovan Bailey. And this was an attempt to work out, like, who's the fastest, who's the absolute best between right. two athletes who were the best in their things. Uh, it wasn't enough to win the gold medal at the Olympics. They had to then make it even better and become the best of the best. And I right. think the ancient Greeks are doing that too. That is so true. Thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Peter J. Miller, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Classics at the University of Winnipeg, talking about the athletic comparisons of ancient Greece to kind of the modern day way we do treat athletes, the mentality that athletes have, how they are treated. It's just so many connections to that. But he's right. There was a, a long gap in the middle there where there wasn't as much emphasis on sporting events, or at least not that, that, that you know, history has shown. Not as much as there was in ancient Greece, but it is so interesting. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Hey, good morning, Simi. Now, I don't think things are any clearer about this big consultation that BC is undergoing. Even after we talked to the lands minister, Nathan Cullen, he seems to think that it's, it's, it's almost like the rest of us are at fault for not fully understanding what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my favorite line in your interview with him was... Uh, we're actually really keen to talk about this. Yeah, you know, I thought since hey, when? Where, where do people get these notions that the government's trying to hide what it's doing here? You know, okay, so they didn't put out a press release. Okay, so they launched a consultation with the public three weeks ago and didn't tell the public they were doing it. But they're really keen to talk about this as if the only reason the minister is talking to you and talking to anyone else about it is because the news media discovered what they were doing and reported it. And suddenly there was a huge public outcry that the government was trying to sneak something past the public, which they were. And now the minister's out having to explain it. In the course of explaining himself, he says, oh, we're really keen to talk about this, right? It's just a coincidence that I'm doing your show right. today, Simi, and talking about it. After you've done three stories on it, that's the reason I'm here to talk. Right. But still, I, I didn't come away from that, even though I asked, you know, over and over and over again, I didn't get a sense of really what this is all about. No, no look, um, he didn't explain why they didn't announce the consultation to the public. He claimed that this is no big deal, that it all it does was enable the government to sign joint management uh, and governance agreements 
with First Nations. And those agreements will be on the basis of consent. But when you tried to find out if in the government's mind, consent is the same thing as giving First Nations a veto, he just didn't answer the question at all. He didn't address that issue at all. They do not want to talk about whether or not giving, recognizing and enshrining in law, by the way, the native consent, the indigenous right to consent, um, means the same thing as a veto, although I think most people who've spent any time thumbing through the dictionary, it's pretty hard to see the distinction. So that's the other issue here. Look, I thought there was a very good response on this from Adam Olson, who's the green MLA for uh, Saanich, uh, North Saanich riding here on Vancouver Island. He's an Indigenous leader himself. And he said yesterday, look, um, he recognizes the need for the government to do this. He sees it as part of the process of accepting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But he said doing this without putting out a news release announcing you're doing it and why, without bringing the public along is a mistake. It's essential. You can't say to people, oh, well, you know, we did this four years ago and this just flows from that. No, he says it's critically important to bring the public along every step of the way, tell them what you're doing, tell them why you're doing it, because, and he says it, and I agree with him on this, the backlash on this descends on Indigenous people. Exactly. You yes. should blame the government for this, right? It's not the fault of Indigenous people that they have constitutional rights that they're exercising, right? That's not their fault. They're doing what all of us would do if we felt our rights were infringed. But the, by the government sneaking this stuff through and not having a proper consultation where they bring the public along and explain it, where the minister has to run around after the news media discover it and explain himself, that is a mistake given the central importance of these changes to the yes. governing of British Columbia. If we want to bring everybody along, you do not want to see that backlash. That's exactly what I'm afraid of happening here yeah. too. So do and you- And rush job. Yes. That's the other thing, right? And again, yeah. he didn't address that, right? So they launched the consultation in January. They don't tell anybody they're doing it. Here we are to February. In February, they're going to start drafting the legislation. It takes a while to do that. Before the public consultation is finished. And then- they intend, the New Democrats, to use their legislative majority to enact these changes, never mind what the public says, before the legislature adjourns in May. Uh, that kind of a rush job, again, of course people are suspicious about what they're up to here. Of course they are. I know. And we're not done, obviously, talking about it, but there's other political issues, too, that we're going to talk. Let's talk about some other political headlines happening this week. Juan Palmer back with us. Let's start with uh, BC United. I got this press release, too. They've got something going on. Yeah, so it's election year and the opposition parties are busy and uh, there's actually a little story from each of the three of them today. So BC United, Kevin Falcon, has a news conference tonight in Vancouver, a rally uh, a restaurant in Vancouver, and then their conservative, BC United, we'll get conservatives in a minute, uh, BC United are going to release their big advertising campaign. So we've been expecting this for a while. The BC United said they were raising money late last year for a rebranding campaign. They said in early January that they'd raised a lot of money in the last quarter of 2023, and they were expecting a big launch. So this will be radio, print, television, social media, advertising, and around the theme of, I believe anyway, rebranding, rebranding BC Liberals as BC United. Uh, Simi, the actual name change happened last April, so it's not like this is a rush job. No. Also, uh, <laughs> might be a great time to do this considering some of the other headlines that we have seen. For instance, I mean, they've already, there, a lot of people clearly are checking out what the BC Conservatives are all about. They are indeed. Uh, the listener could check out the social media feed on the X of uh, our colleague Richard Zussman because he's posted a very interesting uh, picture of a rally last weekend, a BC Conservative Party rally in Dawson Creek. 
and it looks like a room full of hundreds of people. So we're still a long way away from an election, and a big crowd shows up in Dawson Creek to check out the local B.C. Conservative candidate, a guy named Larry Newfeld, already nominated. Look, uh, the Peace River ridings are currently held by B.C. United. Uh, the members there were elected as B.C. Liberals, but that part of the province in the past has elected Socreds, it's elected Reform Party, MLAs, uh, elected the Liberals when they picked up all the reform support, but that's... Uh, that's a part of the province that's going to be wide open to the message from the Conservatives. And that crowd suggests to me that the two local BC United MLAs should be worried about their ability to hang on to those ridings in a general election this fall. Right. And that is, that's Mike Bernier is one of those, right? Yeah, Mike Bernier and Dan Davies. Yeah. And, you know, they've already both announced they're running again yeah. for the, under the BC United label. This is a this is a problem with the merger idea, right? And there's a call out there, business leaders and so forth, saying, oh, the two parties have got to get together and merge. It's too late. The two parties have already nominated all kinds of candidates all over the province. Like, what are you going to do? Go to your local nominee and say, I actually, we want you to step aside for the conservatives. I've been an MLA for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's too far advanced now to reverse direction. A coalition might have been possible very early on, but uh, now it's going to be that writing. It's probably going to be BC Conservative versus United. And the New Democrats kind of hoping that they split the vote so badly that the NDP candidate has a shot up there. And I, I don't know where in the past year you anybody could have said, yes, we have to merge right now because it, it, you know, who knew that it was going to take off like this? Yeah, that's true. And look, if there's, e there's leadership egos, right? You're never going to get Kevin Falcon to admit that he, well, at least not till after the election, that it was a terrible mistake to kick John Rustad out of the caucus. You know, caucus, uh, out, out goes Rustad in a few months. He's leader of the B.C. Conservatives, and he's saying the best thing that ever happened to him politically was Kevin Falcon kicked him out of the caucus. So, no, I mean, you know, everybody on the sidelines who doesn't realize how much ego and resources are invested in political parties is always imagining scenarios where, oh, yeah, they could too, they could get together. Uh, parties do get together, but usually it's after they've lost an election, not well, before. Yeah, and that's what makes this, uh, I think, challenging too. And I'd be curious to know, like the people who are, going out to these BC Conservative meetings to hear the message. Like, what is the message? Is is each potential candidate saying something different? Because it, it sure seems that way now, <laughs> right? We just saw that well, with the two by-elections, two candidates, two ridings, two different messages. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the BC United complaint is that all the Conservatives are doing is surfing a wave created by Pierre Polyev. Well, so what? Uh, they're picking up the same messages, right? They're they're running against the carbon tax. They're talking about affordability. Um, they're saying that the you know provincial government is overregulating and making it hard to attract investment and picking up on federal hunting regulations and all that. Uh, you know it, it, that's true. But if you're picking up the successful parts of the message of the federal party of the same name, so what? If you're also picking up support from people who are going, well, I like this Polyev guy. And you know what? This guy, Rustav, is making a lot of sense as well. Like treating the voters like they're stupid and they can't figure these things out yeah. is not a very good strategy, I have to say. And, you know, that we've had so many opinion polls suggesting the message is clicking. There's not much point in being in denial about it anymore. That's very true. OK, and let's talk about the other opposition party here. BC Greens. Greens have an announcement coming up. Yeah, announcement today, uh, Sonia, first to know the Greens. She says that it'll be about the campaign this year. We've been waiting to find out where Sonia first to know is going to run. So she's currently the MLA for the Cowichan Valley. Uh, the southern end of Vancouver Island has been redistributed by the Electoral Boundaries Commission. And she's actually got a couple of choices. Uh, she could run, uh, if you think of the map of Vancouver Island, she could run riding based north of the Malahat or in a riding based mostly south of it. 
there is an open riding in the capital region, and there's some thought she might run there. Uh, the riding has the name Langford, which is also where John Horgan used to represent, but the Horgan successor is running in a different riding. So it's possible she's going to run in the capital region, possible she'll stay in the Cowichan region. She's going to announce it today, I think. That's where she's headed. And look, the New Democrats pulled out all the stops to defeat Sonia Furstenau in 2020 after they tore up the power-sharing agreement with the Greens. I expect they will make every effort to beat her again. But, you know, lots of political uh, leaders in the province have uh, been surprised to discover that Sonia Furstenau is a pretty effective campaigner. I think she'll be competitive wherever she runs. And pretty like pretty good MLA too, like clearly connection yeah. to the community. But this is different than when you say when she's going to have to pick a different riding here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a problem when there's an electoral dis- redistribution of the House and they, you know, they sometimes change the name of your riding when you didn't want it to. And sometimes they take bits of your riding out and give it to somebody else. And those were your best places. So I'm sure she's sat down and gone polling division by polling division and worked it out. I don't know which way she's going, but as I said, this decision has been waited for a while, so it'll be a big announcement. Adam Olson, who we talked about, he's running in his Saanich riding again for sure, and he's a solid bet to win that for a third time. All right. Tell us lots of interesting stuff. Thanks, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. So not just the government with news these days, but also all the all, now I say all the opposition parties, all three of them, it seems like. This is Mornings with Simi. Politicians and gifts. Boy, this really gets people going, right? And for good reason. It seems wrong. It feels wrong. It is wrong. I think, for a politician at any level to accept a freebie. I've never understood why any elected official takes something for free knowing that, you know, if it got out, it would not look good. It's definitely why people get worked up about things like the prime minister accepting a free vacation, even if it is at a friend's house. This latest trip is not going to be investigated by the federal ethics commissioner because it was apparently a, quote, true friend. So that was okay or whatever. Seems like no matter how many times we talk about it, free trips or a $16 orange juice, politicians never seem to learn to beware the public's wrath on this stuff. Well, you know who knows all about this? Our next guest, as a matter of fact, Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch and joins us now. Hi, Duff. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Duff, how long have you been highlighting stories like this now? 30 years. <laughs> 30 years. They never seem to go away, do they? No, they don't. No, politicians get to write the rules for themselves and set up the enforcement and penalty systems. And so they have written always uh, rules with huge loopholes, weak enforcement systems, like the Trudeau cabinet chose the current interim ethics commissioner in secret, total partisan political process to choose a lapdog instead of a watchdog. And then there's no penalties for violating the ethics rules except a report saying you violated them, which is obviously a very weak penalty. So, you know, they they just encourage themselves to do this because it's legal to be unethical. That's that's the plain truth that that the loopholes are so huge, they actually encourage unethical behavior, not only make it legal to do it, but actually encourage it. Now, the sad part, too, Duffy, I've talked to you many times over the years, uh, and it doesn't seem to matter what level of government or who, which party is in charge. The loopholes persist, don't they? They do. And, you know, anyone who says, oh, we, we have to trust politicians. No, there's many good reasons not to trust politicians. And here's the biggest one. Across the board, all parties, all party leaders have supported keeping in place loophole-filled rules, weak enforcement systems, and almost zero penalties in most cases for dishonest, unethical, secretive, unrepresentative, and wasteful behavior by politicians, their staff, and government officials. So they're not there to serve us. They're there to serve themselves. And what's amazing is a majority of them, who presumably always claim that I'm there to serve the public, have not risen up and defied the leaders and passed bills closing all the loopholes and strengthening enforcement. They all go along, they all get along by going along, and they get rewarded by their leaders 
for supporting this completely corrupt system. Right. Well, let's talk about the loopholes, though, because obviously some people or some some of the politicians, some of the elected officials don't use them, but the loopholes exist. I think that's the point you're trying to make, right, is that they may not actively fight to close them. They may not take advantage of them, but they're not closing them. That's right. And one of the biggest ones that they've maintained at the federal level for 20 years since the ethics rules first came in into uh, force, and that's one thing to note, we didn't have ethics rules before 2004. So politicians waited for uh, 147 years to even pass ethics rules for themselves at the federal level in Canada and most of the provinces as well. But one of them is sponsored travel. So lobbyists are allowed to pay for junkets for MPs, their staff, family, and their family members and associates. Unlimited amount of money can be spent on this. It is disclosed. But about a third of MPs take these trips each year, just being paid off by lobbyists uh, on these junkets. And the lobbyists are, of course, wanting them to do a favor in return. And all parties have supported this sponsored travel loophole. Finally, yesterday, the Ethics Committee referred the matter to another committee that controls the MPs' ethics code and said this should end, finally. But that committee, just a year ago, recommended to the House that the loophole be maintained and another loophole be uh, opened that would allow lobbyists to pay for interns in MPs' offices. What? 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 Which would allow foreign governments to give money to a Canadian group as as, as a front for a foreign government and then pay for uh, interns, which would be spies, in every MP's office. And, And this committee ignored 10 other huge loopholes that allow for secretive, dishonest, and unethical activities. I've never... And the ethics, the ethics commissioner is chosen by the ruling party cabinet in secret, which is, you know, just a recipe for getting a lapdog, not a watchdog. And this interim ethics commissioner, Conrad von Finkenstein, he's been on the job for only five months. He's created six new loopholes in the laws, uh, in the ethics rules with his decisions uh, where he's interpreting the laws to say they don't apply in a whole bunch of situations and he's allowing even more unethical activity he, to go on. Was he not the head of the CRTC for years? He was and uh, Trudeau has clearly found the lapdog he's been looking for uh, in this guy because he's created six uh, loopholes. He's, le- he's cleared away eight complaints including uh, one about Trudeau. Said it was fine for Trudeau to choose his family friend David Johnston as uh, uh, an investigator to investigate Trudeau's actions on foreign interference last spring. I mean, this guy is a dedicated lapdog, and uh, hopefully the opposition parties will do all they can to stop him from being reappointed for another six-month term, let alone being being appointed as ethics commissioner for a seven-year term. Because he, in five months, he has one of the worst records of any ethics commissioner across the country that I've seen in the past 20 years. So nothing ever seems to change, right? Lots of talk about it. I just don't understand what happens when people get elected, like the idea that, oh yeah, somebody can give you a trip to go somewhere and you think you're not beholden to that person. It kind of defies logic, doesn't it? It does, actually. Psychologists have done clinical studies around the world and found in every culture, in every country, they've tested about 30,000 people worldwide the number one way to influence someone is to give them a gift or do them a favor. And and so politicians who say, oh, I wouldn't be influenced by that donation or by that gift or favor, essentially what they're saying is, I'm not human. Which is, <laughs> which is you know, not, you shouldn't vote for those people then because yeah, they're not human. They're not and they're human. not going to be concerned about your concerns. Duff? Because that's what they're saying. It's been shown across the world and that even small gifts have, have influence over decisions. Believe, yeah. And we got to clean this all up finally, and uh, amazingly, there isn't one party that wants to do it across uh, the board. So, And then they are surprised when voter turnout drops. No kidding. And, and trust levels are low. Of course they are. Duff, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Duff Conacher is a co-founder of Democracy Watch, and he has been railing against us, as he said, for 30 years. Doesn't matter the political party, doesn't matter what level of government. Uh, the loopholes still exist. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the Human Rights Commissioner of BC and the work they're doing. So what they've done is they've launched an inquiry into police use of force against racialized individuals and those who have mental health issues. Why are they doing this? Well, it was prompted by a study done back in 2021, so a couple of years ago, which revealed what the office calls a concerning pattern of discrimination. 
So some questions about this, right? Our producer, Bianca Rego, decided to speak with the Human Rights Commissioner, Kasari Govender, to find out what did they learn during this 2020 investigation that led them to launch this entirely new inquiry? So this inquiry uh, builds on some work that we did in 2021. We released a report called Equity is Safer. And it was looking at police data from five different police jurisdictions in the province, some RCMP, some municipal police forces. And we looked at whether those policing practices in a, on arrests and mental health situations where police were called, whether certain racialized communities were impacted more than others. And we found, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, that indeed, Indigenous people and Black people in particular, as well as West Asian people in some circumstances, are highly disproportionately impacted in arrests and detentions and in mental health incidents. So with this inquiry, we're taking a step further and expanding that analysis to uh, use of force across the province. Do police use force disproportionately against some communities more than others? And we're expanding to look at all the police forces across the province, not just doing that deep dive onto five. So I know this might not explicitly fall under the specific category of excessive use of police force, but what about police street checks? As someone who lives in downtown Vancouver, it's something that I see all the time, even though it was supposed to be phased out in 2020. So is that something that's going to be addressed as well? Uh, We aren't. This inquiry is going to be very specific to police use of force, but we did actually look at police stops in the last work we did. So we did make some recommendations in our Equity is Safer report uh, about changing police directives so that we can take out the randomized element of police stops. That is often where, um, and I'll put randomized in quotes, it's often where our biases and stereotypes enter into decision making. That's a human characteristic that when we're, we're trying to make decisions that often our own biases and stereotypes will enter in. And one of the ways around that is to make things really systematized and based in law and and policy. Um, And so we made some recommendations about how to do that. Those have not been implemented yet by government, though. Okay, so with that said, how can you be sure that the recommendations that you make in this inquiry, if you do make any recommendations at all, whether or not they will be implemented? Um, it's, you know, it's tricky, uh, whether, how, how they'll be implemented. I can tell you a little bit more about my power as human rights commissioner. So I have the power to initiate, when I initiate an inquiry, I have the power to compel evidence and require people to participate in the process. So require, for example, the data be produced for our use or require people to uh, participate in interviews. So that's one important way that we have some, we have some teeth in the process and people can't hide uh, and public entities can't hide information in that process. So we can make that public. I will file this report with the legislature along with my recommendations uh, and we'll, we'll do some public re- awareness raising around that, including talking to media. And then I can require in that process um, duty bearers. So people who are receiving my recommendations, likely in this case, government and potentially police agencies themselves, that they, re- that they report back to me on a regular basis at, at intervals that I can set about how well they're doing complying with those recommendations. And then again, I can make that public. So part of the teeth here is really about public pressure. So on the note of public pressure, are you going to be speaking with the public about alleged instances of excessive police force, like either people who have witnessed it or who have undergone instances of this excessive force? We're not sure if the entire process will undertake yet. Where this, this inquiry is going to be primarily focused on the data, but we are talking to uh, community agencies and community uh, members about how we use that data. So that's where our, a lot of our consultation will focus, is to ensure that, again, that we're using data in a way that's really respectful to communities. This is not going to be as focused on individual cases of police violence, as important as those are. This inquiry is really going to be focused on that statistical picture so that we can see who's impacted where. So where do you get that data? Uh, directly from from the provincial government at this point. Um, so all of our data is is from the provincial government. We're unlikely in this case to go directly to police just because they've already um, are required to give that information to the government. Sorry, I'm a, a big true crime buff here, but there have been a lot of instances where these issues were not accurately reported by the authorities if they were even reported at all. So how are you going to make sure that doesn't happen? Like, how will you know that the data will be accurate? 
Well, one of the things that we're going to be looking at is not only what do we have, but what do we not have? So what are the gaps um, that may be evident there? And uh, making sure one of the questions that we're asking is, is, is there's compliance with, with the re- statutory requirements, the legal requirements to report on this? Um, and, and what, well, how might those legal requirements need to shift a little bit if we want to fill those fill those gaps in the data? So, for example, we're not sure we're going to be able to get great racial data from these reports, um, and so if we can't, uh, we'll be looking to how do we how do we ensure that we can get access um, to that kind of breakdown? Um, this is my final question. I wanted to mention as we've been talking about that. These investigations have gone on for years. It's something we've been talking about for so long. So what about this specific inquiry is different from the others? So we know that we hear from racialized communities um, and communities with disabilities, people with disabilities, that these are experiences that they're having. Uh, What we need sometimes is the data to really ensure that we can... uh, ensure that these stories really have that power of statistics behind them. And that can be powerful. It's really powerful to have people's stories as well, but it can be powerful and important for policymakers, for lawmakers to have that information that they can make then evidence-based decision-making on. So it's often a really about, um, you know, backing up and bolstering what, what we're already hearing in community and using that data to really leverage for it to make change. All right, that is BC's Human Rights Commissioner Kasari Govender speaking with our producer Bianca Rego. This is Mornings with Simi. Big announcement yesterday. The construction for a new laboratory in Vancouver that aims to enhance access to uh, PET and CT scans for cancer treatment. Now, health officials say this will significantly impact cancer care and research. But how? Like, why is this so important? Because right now we know people are struggling to get the treatment they need. In some cases, they desperately need for cancer care and treatment. So how much progress, if this is progress, is this? So joining us now to tell us is Dr. Francois Bernard, who's a Senior Executive Director of Research at BC Cancer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. What is so significant about this announcement about this new laboratory? It will allow BC to be to have the capacity to expand the number of PET-CT scans offered uh, for cancer patients across the province. Currently, uh, BC Cancer has been operating a medical psychotron since 2010, um, and that psychotron has enabled the installation and the operation of four PET-CT scanners uh, in, in Victoria, Vancouver, and Kelowna. And this is really building for the future. It will allow first future proof um, in the sense that we have capacity in case one of the machines would break down. For example, if the current psychotron would break down, then that machine will be able to continue uh, providing supply. And it will allow the province to add and expand capacity and provide more PET-CT scans in the future. It will also have some short-term impact. As soon as it's operational, we should be able to increase capacity somewhat. But really, this is future proofing to make sure the province doesn't run out of capacity. Okay, so how, when you say how it could increase capacity, do we know by how much? Because we know there's quite a demand for this, right? Yeah, the demand, uh, we, 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 we have wait lists and so on. The demand is high. Um, the capacity can, can be improved by increasing the number of days in which we operate as well as the operating hours. Okay, so is this, there's so many concerns right now about cancer care in our province, Dr. Bernard. Is this one step? Like what other steps do we need to take? There's a comprehensive cancer plan, as you've probably seen, that the health ministry announced uh, last year uh, to massively invest in infrastructure, people, and uh, capacity in the system. These changes take time because it takes time to build. um, If you have a new facility, install a new hospital, a new cancer center, uh, you need to hire staff and train more people. Uh, So you can't turn a dime uh, around on a dime, a whole system. It takes time. However, there's been um, major investment made to build capacity, and we're starting to see really tangible results of these investments. The capacity for chemotherapy treatment has increased at about 10% um, uh, compared to last year. And um, uh, radiotherapy capacity, there's new centers that are being planned in uh, Nanaimo, for example, uh, Kamloops, uh, Surrey. All of that will contribute um, over the mid to long long term, and in the short term, uh, for example, to improve capacity for radiation therapy treatment 
we're sending people to Bellingham in Washington state. Well, I know that was pretty controversial, right? When that happened, because people say, why are we doing that? How long does it take to get this up and running? How much longer do we have to send people to, to out of the country to get their treatment? Well, uh, you'd have to ask um, the, 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 the health minister, but right now I think there's a current contract in place and uh, that capacity is, uh, is being fully utilized. And I think it'll continue until we are able to set up new radiation therapy facilities and, and increase capacity in the existing centers. So, Dr. Dr., can you give us an idea of what, like, what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the sense of urgency to expand the system and to get it staffed up and to get the people so that we don't have these kinds of waits. Well, the, uh, the, these are consequences of decisions that were made 15 years ago, right? Uh, the, the, the need to expand, add more, more radiation therapy centers, more chemotherapy chairs, and so on. Uh, it requires physical space. It requires people. And we, we, we knew this was coming, uh, and, and it will continue to grow. Uh, the number of cancer cases increased because of the double hit we are getting from population aging as well as um, the increase in population. And we're doing everything we can to uh, speed up our, our capacity to uh, offer um, services to patients. And, and people are working extremely hard behind the scenes, uh, physicians, nurses. Um, it, it's hard. And uh, we, we are lucky that we have a, a really, really dedicated team of staff working for BC Cancer to help care for our people. Uh, we are hiring um, uh, as much as we can in terms of physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, um, technologists to provide those services. Um, and, and we're getting great support uh, to be able to improve that service delivery. Um, so, But it takes time and um, we're doing everything we can to provide both short-term mitigation as well as make sure that we're set up in the future so that this, not, this doesn't happen again. So this pro- project that was announced yesterday, how soon will it be built and up and running? It should be up and running in 2026. Uh, so spring 2026 is the current estimate by which the Psychotron will be up and running. That's actually pretty fast. Well, we were able to take advantage of an existing building that had been built and designed and worked. We'd been collaborating with Triumph, which is a big physics research lab um, uh, located on the south campus at UBC. And um, so this enabled us to move faster because they had a building. There was a space within the building that we could partner with Triumph and take advantage of that resource. This is why we, we, we chose that site. It can be up and running faster. And it reduces costs as well to get this implemented. Those are all good things. And so would you call this cutting-edge technology? Yes, it is. This is a rapidly expanding field. Access to diagnostic services is essential to be able to know where your cancer is, where it has spread, how it responds to treatment. So this is an important a part of cancer care, um, and we'll have the latest, coolest technology to offer to our patients. Uh, but it, it's also uh, an essential component of uh, of a continuum of cancer care. So, so the diagnostic services um, need to be um, uh, taken care of in addition to the treatment capacity. Right. This is one piece, right? Yes. Okay. And so the hiring of people that must be challenging right now too, right, Doctor Bernard? So finding people who are qualified for all these jobs. Correct. For the um, so we have time and we're training a lot of people. This is the other advantage of having a very strong ecosystem uh, in people working in particular particle particle accelerators and chemists and so on that are needed to work behind the scene. Um, so we're fortunate that we have a lot of training capacity and people working in that space in British Columbia um, in the research space, and that's feeding in to support the clinical services uh, downstream as well. Um, but at the other end, uh, we have short shortages of nuclear medicine technologists, for example, and uh, radiation therapy technologists. So this is a great potential career for young people who are looking into going into healthcare. Uh, There's huge demand, uh, not only in BC, but in Canada and internationally. And these are great jobs uh, where you can care for people and, 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 and get essentially a very, very good career. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to explain it all to us this morning. Thank you. We appreciate that. That's Dr. Francois Bernard, who's the Senior Executive Director of Research at BC Cancer. So there was this announcement yesterday uh, from the provincial government and health officials about this new cyclotron and radiopharmacy laboratory in Vancouver. And I thought, well, wait a minute, what is this actually all about? Like, if we're talking about improving cancer care, I think people want to know about that. And that, that is what this is. It will enhance access to PET-CTC scans and help them with more cancer diagnosis 
diagnoses and treatments, which is the big thing, right? So it's a state-of-the-art facility up and running by 2026, which I think is actually pretty fast. Uh, They have to get people staffed up to do this, but it's kind of one more piece. And as Dr. Bernard explained to us, there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes to try to ramp up the cancer care system. And that's good because we need it. Uh, We clearly waited too long to get this work going, but it is going now. I think it's good sometimes to show that work that is being done right behind the scenes. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been a couple of weeks now since Premier David Eby did a bit of a cabinet shuffle and decided a change had to happen at the Ministry of Children and Family Development. And about time, many of us said, because it's been terrible to talk about and to watch these stories of children being neglected and abused even killed and feeling like there hasn't been enough accountability or any kind of change to the system to prevent these stories from happening in the first place or after the case, just not enough accountability. So we wanted to learn about some of those potential changes. What is going to be different with someone new in charge there? Well, joining us now is Grace Lore, the Minister of Children and Family Development. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me this morning, Simi. Now, what are your priorities for the work of the ministry? I think my priorities at the ministry are your listeners' priorities, uh, the, uh, the priorities of British Columbians, that kids uh, remain safely with their families as often as possible, that when that's not possible, that children are connected to family and communities, and that children who are in care um, have everything they need to be safe, um, to thrive. Um, these are my priorities. This is the, the work that I'm committed to driving forward. Because as you said to me, we must get this right. We must get this right for children in BC. So how do we make that happen? Because I know the concerns have been a lack of accountability, right? Where nothing ever seems to change. Kids don't get visits and, and nobody's ever punished for that. I mean, how do you make sure these kids are checked up on and they're okay? I share these concerns. I share the concerns um, that the processes that we do have in place must be followed. And when those processes are not followed, that we need to learn and act quickly. Um, I, I, as your listeners will, hear these stories, and not just as a minister, but as a mom. Um, In addition to making sure that we've got the processes uh, in place and followed, is looking to strengthen accountability, to take additional steps uh, where and where we we must do so, um, so that we're doing everything in our, our power to keep children in BC safe. So how do you filter that message down then? How do you say to the agencies, to all the workers there, uh, listen, the, these rules have to be followed, and if you don't, there are consequences? Absolutely. Um, uh, so this is work I'm, I'm digging into in my first couple of weeks. Um, but also looking at additional steps for us to take. Um, For example, working towards an Indigenous director of child welfare so that uh, we are doing everything everything possible to keep Indigenous kids in Indigenous communities and putting all the accountability, uh, all the um, uh, strengthening, all the processes uh, so that those kids um, are checked in on, are safe and are looked after. Do you think that in the past there wasn't enough accountability in the system? This, uh, this question is so important. It's so important because we are talking about uh, our children, uh, the children across BC, the, uh, some of the most vulnerable children, Simi. And so digging into this, making sure that where those processes are, are uh, in place, that they're followed. But, but I think strengthening accountability, taking additional steps is absolutely something we need to do. So what was the message that you got from the premier upon? I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is not a job that a lot of cabinet ministers want to take on because I think this ministry in particular feels quite thankless, right? It's, it's incredibly challenging. But what was the, the message that you got from the premier in taking this job on? The message that I got from the premier was, you know, as I as I said, that the we must take those steps forward. Uh, the shared vision of of what it looks like to 
do everything to keep kids with their families and to do everything in our power to keep them safe when when it isn't safe for them to stay with their families. Um, that's the message I got from the premier, um, uh, as well as really investing in our relationships and our partnerships and community, whether that's organizations that provide services or the First Nations Leadership Council. Um, and, you know, you mentioned how challenging and tough this ministry is. That is true. But it is tough because it is also the most important work. It is uh, the most important work to get it right by kids and by communities. So um, uh, challenging, tough, yes, and essential. Hmm. Are you willing to uh, cut ties, I guess, with agencies or groups that, you know, if, if you find out, like, look the case, I'm t- thinking about those, the, the poor kids out in Chilliwack who were abused. One was killed. People went to jail for this. They were in government care, but they had never been checked on by the agency that was supposed to be looking after them. Is there a greater willingness today to say, you know what, don't check on the kids. We're cutting ties. You are not going to get a, a government contract for looking after kids if you can't look after them. Oh, I absolutely share that concern, and it is absolutely uh, my responsibility, our responsibility, to make sure that that everyone who is involved in child protection, uh, who um, is tasked with visiting kids, who is tasked with keeping kids safe, um, uh, are taking all those required steps. And as I said, that we're looking at, at what pieces are missing. Um, and so, a, a commitment to me, a commitment from me. Um, uh, as minister, but as as a mom, uh, that we are are looking uh, at all of these situations and uh, that we learn from them. We must learn from them. We must get this right. Do you think there were some pieces missing then? Is that part of this process? I I think that um, uh, what we've heard and the reviews that have been done indicated that, yes, there were pieces missing and that we need to do better, both in terms of um, uh, following what's there, but as I mentioned, um, uh, strengthening accountabilities, moving moving forward, uh, adding additional pieces, and um, uh, you know, I, I referenced the indigenous indigenous director of child welfare. Um, we need to have the pieces in place so that we have the tools to keep more indigenous kids in indigenous communities. Um, and as part of that, you know, some some really important steps have been taken forward uh, in recent years, particularly around jurisdiction. Um, And so for me, driving forward so that more First Nations uh, are able to exercise their inherent jurisdiction over their children and families is also part of the answer. Right. I've heard that too for quite a few years now. So what is the timeline like to to hire that that position that you've talked about there and to see some more of that ownership in Indigenous communities? For the Indigenous uh, Director of Child Welfare. Uh, that's a major priority for me in the um, uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, I, I'm as in my third week uh, here, uh, but that's a that's a critical priority. Um, in terms of jurisdiction, uh, we're working closely with a number of nations across the province uh, who uh, want to take on jurisdiction, and we're working closely with them. Um, and I've connected a number of times. Uh, with the First Nations Leadership Council and uh, a couple of um, their members directly um, uh, to talk about those shared priorities and a shared sense of urgency. Okay, so sense of urgency, then hopefully we can check back in with you and and hear about some of better work that is being done. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much to me, and, and thanks for making space for this conversation. Always, that is Grace Lore, Minister of Children and Family Development. And, and it is important to check back in, I think, on stories like this because, yep, ministers are going to say what ministers are going to say. Understandable. That is their job. But it's about holding them to account if we do hear another horrible story or let's say there's a good news story. Like, yes, we need to follow up and make sure that was that message sent to trickle down to all the levels in the ministry to say this would happen in the past cannot be allowed to happen again. That's the kind of accountability we are talking about here, especially when we are dealing with children, the most vulnerable who need that help, who need that intervention, right? If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.